Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that today is not a typical episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show. John and I are collaborating on a longer episode, but don't worry, we'll be back to our normal 5-10 to minute short-form show very soon. Good morning and welcome to the June 29th episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we are on a mission to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone that wants to join us. My name is Ryan Joy. I am joined by John DeConti, and today we are talking about the wrestler who lost the world title on this day in 1998 and then managed to not win a world title for 10 more years but lose the next one on this very day in 2008. John, we're talking about the Big Red Machine Kane. Yes, what an incredible coincidence, and wrestling likes to to connect dots like that and but that's just you know th that's just too much of a stretch to think that somebody looked at a calendar and went we're gonna have you drop this belt on this day because it coincides like that is just an incredible coincidence yeah and i, I don't believe that's what happened i think it's right, it is right. purely a coincidence and it's funny that first of all you and i just recently watched the a and e biography on kane and yes. why we're coming together to talk about him today the funny thing is they didn't even acknowledge his ecw world title run during that bio which is fine they did talk about his win over steve austin at king of the ring 1998 and sure. glenn jacobs speaking he's, this was great i was on top of the world because they trusted me to carry the world title belt they neglect to say that he did not hold that belt for 24 hours yeah. <laughs> he didn't really get the torch to carry or anything yeah, that is a wrestling footnote. When people talk about who held this title, and that's a, and especially when you talk about the aesthetics of the title, which of course I always yeah. go back to that big eagle, which mm -hmm. had just just debuted with the WF block logo, which was only around for a hot second in between the eventual the big eagle that everybody knows and the smoking skull and this that and the other thing. That would be the belt that was handed to Arnold Schwarzenegger somewhere down the line, but. Kane is the only other guy to have held that, and he did so for less than 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Um, with perhaps hardly ever doing a promo, that's got to be some sort of record, right? Because Paul Bear did most of the talking for him, especially that first year. Absolutely. Uh, I think there, Vince McMahon asked him to say something. So he did say leading up to the match that if he didn't win, he would set himself on fire. He used the voice changer thing to say it that's pretty cool that that without cutting a promo he was over enough to a be in that position and b to actually be given the nod even despite it being a 24-hour run sure yeah he's an amazing character he's arguably the best big man of all time because he's a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger than the undertaker He's worlds more athletic than say the big show he was healthy throughout almost his entire career unlike Someone like Kevin Nash, who, you know, sometimes broke a bone or pulled a muscle, put on his socks. He didn't have demons like Scott Hall. When you think of all the big guys who were still athletic, he is an incredible character. And to for such a big chunk of that to be without him ever speaking a word and having a mask that you could almost barely see his eyes through the early versions of those masks. So he talks about getting the head nod from his St. Bernard and using that to show a little bit of emotion. You're talking about someone who was almost completely bereft of any facial expression or facial emotion. 
and for the you know the whole first half let's say of his career and yet he was such a compelling character yeah it's interesting that a lot of people say that the story of undertaker and kane is the greatest story that wwf ever told or wwe and uh, i wonder when i was watching this would this work today and bret hart made the comment that there's something so compelling that everybody relates to this brother versus brother story and i think the brother versus brother story will work at any point but Absolutely. the supernatural aspect of the undertaker and kane worked really well in 97 everybody was glued for the story but you think it would work today for exactly that reason probably not yeah because the, the supernatural stuff like that and that was the perfect time to do it so you were taking two guys who maybe didn't necessarily need the supernatural aspect because they were that good of in-ring performers but it was just at the tail end of that just crappy everyone's got a side job and it was the end of that era where you could get away with that and they maybe squeeze the last bit of juice out of that piece of fruit where they you could do the the supernatural with those two and get away with it because you already knew and loved and respected the undertaker even though he came from that cartoonish era the very tail end of it and like you said the brother versus brother thing works just on its own and then you could have those aspects play in there but i think today it, it, it would be laughed at. And in fact, especially if that's how you tried to get two new people over, they would be laughed out of the building, even if they turned out to be as talented as The Undertaker and Kane. This conversation may date itself because currently on WWE programming, we have Bray Wyatt and Uncle Howdy, who Uncle Howdy is Bray's brother, Bo Dallas. Sure. So it'll be interesting to see maybe that'll play out because that's going to be a supernatural brother relationship. And we'll see, maybe this conversation will be no good in, <laughs> in a few months. <laughs> we'll have to keep that in mind because we are recording this a bit early. So we'll have to see. Yeah, but at the time we're recording this, the way they're slow rolling Bray Wyatt, it may be three years before they get to the two of them. Turning <laughs> <each other. laughs> that's true. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so let's talk about the early Glenn Jacobs. He was born in Spain because his dad was in the military. He grew up in Bowling Green, Missouri. He was tall and awkward. He really wanted to play sports as a living. That was what he really wanted to do. I guess he wasn't really committed to one single sport. He played basketball in high school and he played a little football in college only because the football coach said, hey, you might be able to go pro with your size and everything and your athletic abilities. He gets hurt. And that injury, that he, torn meniscus, knee injury, and that comes back to haunt him because he actually does go to the Chicago Bears training camp and they cut him before he even steps foot on the field because his because yeah. of his knee injury. And yeah, and that is the incredible thing about him. Now, I don't know anyone who's got you – know, take politics out of it because he's, of course, become – spoiler alert, he's become a politician. But yes. take politics out of it. And I think JBL says this. No one has a bad thing to say about the man, Glenn Jacobs. Yep. No one who's ever worked with him in the business, this, that, and the other thing. What I found amazing is I don't know of anyone who's ever become so good, so famous, so top-notch in the sport or the field of entertainment that we know them for who got there 
and I don't want to say by accident, but as you just alluded to, here's a guy who knew he wanted to be a professional athlete. But I've never heard anyone who wanted to be a professional athlete and wound up doing so because the athleticism of wrestling, I think, makes them professional athletes, no matter what you want to say about the overall business as it stands. I've never heard of anyone who got to that level without seemingly having passion for it because he admits that he probably could have been a better basketball player if he had tried a little harder. Yeah, He admits that he fell into football because, hey, he's 6'9", 300 pounds. And he didn't have any necessarily, his mother says, oh, he loved playing football. But Glenn never says, oh, it was my passion. It was, it was just his dream to be a professional athlete. And then after he fails his physical, he gets sent home from NFL rookie minicamp. He's in a depression. He's a, a teacher, a substitute teacher. He watches Raw and his buddy says, hey, you could probably do that. He didn't necessarily have a passion for wrestling either. Once he was in it, I'm sure he did everything to succeed. By no means am I trying to say that the man didn't work hard at his craft, but it seems like he never had a particular love, a particular passion, a particular direction. He just knew he wanted to do something physical on a professional level. And I don't know, I've ever seen of any i've ever seen anyone reach the heights that he's reached with that much of a generic goal yeah because you have to really stick with the one thing that you're working on and practice it every single day in order to become good enough at it to make a living at it so to your point yeah that that is crazy (laughs) and when you start what's funny is if you put together the timeline of glenn jacobs wrestling career that's pretty fascinating too, especially if you just watch a documentary like the one that we watched for this, because it goes through the chapters, but you don't really get a feeling for how much time is really taking place. In some cases, time is really slow and things are happening over a long period of time. In other, time, other ways, things are really fast. They do mention that he starts training and that he's got his first match in two weeks. Okay. And that was more of a because of his size and presence and availability, I think, more than anything else. But that... Same thing that we, go ahead. No, it was the same thing that happened with The Undertaker. Yeah. When he went to Texas, they were just, you're a big son bitch, let's put you in there. He was learning on the... It seems like both of them were learning on the job, although The Undertaker was working with other real pros, whereas Glenn Jacobs was with a bunch of guys who were just as green as him, it seems like. And until he gets to whether it was Memphis or Smoky Mountain, he's not working with any guys with any real matches under their belt. Yeah. So he starts, has that first match in March of 92. And you know, we've been wrestling for just a couple of weeks at that point. The Christmas creature character that the, that uh, that Jerry Lawler wants to put Glenn Jacobs in is December of 1992. So... Wow. About six months later, he has been discovered by Jerry Lawler. And he's, okay, let's put this guy in this Christmas creature character because that'll be fun. And that it's funny that they focus on that for any length of time during the A&E bio because it was a two-match character. It was two dates in December of 1992. And Kane's talking about how innovative the costume was. And if you look at the costume, it's nothing to look at, but it is 
his mom made it but from scratch sewing garland into the garments and putting lights on it with batteries and stuff i get his point it's innovative it's like the chris jericho ring jacket that lit up and stuff like that <laughs> 25 years later or whatever yeah. a few years later so that's interesting so that's about six months and he's he's noticed by by jerry lawler now the territory of memphis is notorious for very low payoffs but he is that's a stage now he does not put on a stage as glenn jacobs and he's got a mask on and all this stuff so he's not really recognizable which is probably good because i'm sure those early matches were not good but he gets invited back and he wrestles in the uswa that's memphis for the whole of 1993 and he even has one match against Sting in WCW, WCW Saturday Night, so televised yeah. in 93. But that's March of 93. So one year after his debut as a wrestler, his first match as a wrestler, he's wrestling Sting on TV. So that's pretty cool. Even though it's an enhancement role, he loses that match. Sure. But also in October of 93, he has a match on WWF superstars wrestling as Glenn Jacobs and he wins that match. So that's kind of cool. So in his first 18 months, he's already been on WCW in an enhancement role and in WWF in a undercard dark match, not a dark match. It was a televised match, but not one that anybody paid any attention to It's a one in one and big win and out. So a lot happens in the first 18 months. Yeah. it's insane to think that once again, he's working with a bunch of guys who were all learning on the job like him. And within six months, he's in the ring with Jerry Lawler. Ludicrous costume and character aside, he's in the ring with Jerry Lawler in Memphis. That's pretty amazing. So two things about that. Jerry Lawler talks about it and Kane talks about it. Like it was this great concept. It was amazing. Undertaker laughs like hell and makes fun of him to this day about the Christmas creature. <laughs> that is my favorite moment of the whole two hours is the genuine laugh that that the Undertaker <laughs> Jerry dressed him up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> like, that I I laughed the first time and then I watched it last night to again to take notes to remember certain dates or people's names this that and the other thing. I laughed just as hard the second time at Undertaker getting a genuine belly laugh out of Jerry Lawler dressing up his best buddy as a Christmas tree. Yeah. Those first couple of years were like chapters in a book almost that you could see they would transition. Like, so 1992 is he starts wrestling and he's like, you said, he's wrestling. Nobody's by the end of 92, he's wrestling Jerry Lawler. All of 1993, he's in USWA and he gets his tryout matches with WCW and WWF. And then in 1994, not touched on in the documentary at all, but he wrestles mostly international, I'll say. He does have a bunch of dates in Indianapolis and Kentucky, but then otherwise he's in Puerto Rico, he's in Germany for a whole bunch of dates, for, and then he's also got a few dates in Japan. So he's traveling a lot in 94, and then that part's all skipped over in the documentary. But then in 95, like January 2nd, he starts with Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And I knew that he was known as the Unibomb or whatever like that. They they were using that reference material of what was topical at the time. What I didn't know was that is why he lives in Knoxville because he moved there. He moved there for Smoky Mountain and that he was paired up with Al Snow of all people 
that early on. I had no idea that, that was the case that Al was kind of early, that Kane was a protege of Al Snow early on. That was interesting to me. Yes, that was very interesting because likewise, I had no idea. I knew Al was around the business. I didn't know that he was necessarily in Smoky Mountain. I didn't know that necessarily the two of them were paired up. And you can, I don't know that anyone knew who Al Snow was yet either, but you can just see in a few times they have them side by side that Al already completely knows who he is and is good enough to be a wisecracker and whatnot. And, and, his personality comes through in everything that he does because already, he, you know, his number one thing in the back of his mind when he's doing his promos is to make the big man in the hockey mask behind him laugh. Right. And <laughs> you you got to love Al Snow. Like I mentioned, chapters. It feels like a long time. He debuts in 92 and then he has a match with The Undertaker in August of 95 at the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Super Bowl of Wrestling Show. But like I said, there was like a chapter. The first year was learning. Second year was Memphis, a pretty good stage. The third year is his international tour. And then in this fourth year, he's at Smoky Mountain and he is wrestling The Undertaker in August. And that that bit right there helps him take her makes a mental note, this guy's good, he's got it. We also see footage of him wrestling the Rock and Roll Express, and we see footage of Jericho coming through at that time. So there's a lot of people that were intersecting with Glenn Jacobs in 1994. That's where he meets his wife, Crystal, who has stayed with him for all of these years, despite the various visual changes he's made to his look over the years to, to be a wrestler. She didn't want anything to do with him in the beginning, but when he took notice of her injured daughter and stuff i guess she had to go out on a date with a sweet story there and and they remain together to this day yes mrs jacobs is she is a pisser whenever they, they talk about his overall aesthetic yeah so here's a guy that when she met him had that ramen noodle blonde like tight perm kind yep. of like really sid vicious and yeah, every time they change his hair or his look, she's got something to say. And that's pretty much all she has to say, because it seems like she got dragged to the shows by a friend. Her daughters were very much into it. Seems like she didn't really care for it too much one way or another, but she always has something to say about every time they changed her husband's look. Yes. And then in 1995, he comes to WWF as Isaac Yankum. And he's pretty much there the rest of his career. They talk about him going back to Memphis a little bit here and there, but not materially so. He is pretty much there the entire rest of his career. And he, so he, the Isaac Yankum character starts in August of 1995, and it goes through April of 1996. But in, the, in there, he has a SummerSlam match with Bret Hart. It's all stemming off of Bret's feud with Jerry Lawler. He gets a whole he gets a, a whole bunch of stuff. He has a match with Undertaker in December of 1995, and that was the way they say it in the documentary. It's almost like that was the decision point where they was like, okay, this guy he's not he made the Undertaker look bad. This is not good. Undertaker gives him a bit of a pep talk at that point and tells him that you've got to be a bit of an asshole. Stick up for yourself. Stick up for the good of the business here. And we see footage of. Yankum losing to the Ultimate Warrior. The Ultimate Warrior came in April of 96. He came back at WrestleMania. The match where Ultimate Warrior pinned Yankum was actually in April of 96 as well. And that was pretty much it for the dentist. He had some house shows after that, but that was pretty much it. 
So just to lay out the time there, comes in August of 95, immediately has a SummerSlam match with Bret Hart. Spends some time throughout the rest of that year. December has that match with The Undertaker that doesn't go quite as well. Limps along until April where the Warrior beats him. And that pretty much takes, that's pretty much the end there. But they bring him back in September of that year. And it's amazing that the fans wouldn't have picked up on this immediately because he is still wrestling as Isaac Yankum in September of 96 on house show tours. And they're in, they go to Kuwait and they go to South Africa. And when they're, when he's in South Africa, which is September of 1996, Jerry Briscoe tells him to give Vince a call when he gets back. He does. And Vince says, you're going to be the fake diesel. And I was fascinated by the bits in the A&E bio about the fake diesel, because generally speaking, it's the laughed off thing. Right. But they really talk about how much Glenn Jacobs as a wrestler grew during the fake diesel era. And he actually enjoyed being the fake diesel. <laughs> is what yeah, it gave him some confidence because they were they were pushing him so much because they were really trying to get these characters over. And apparently he accepted this is a time where I'm not watching WF almost at all. I know of the fake diesel and razor characters. And like you said, I know of them as a joke. Yeah. But Kevin Nash says that, you know, from his standpoint, he sees Glenn kind of change as a wrestler here. He gets the the quote unquote big man pacing down because Isaac Yankum worked a little too fast because he was just that athletic and he could, but I guess within the business, you're really not supposed to when you're a big man. And as trying to be Diesel in the way that he watched Kevin Nash Nash do it, he gets the pacing down, he gets the confidence, his wife certainly loves the gimmick, and that kind of, I think he says that's the first time he felt like he belonged there. Which is so bizarre because it was a parody character and it was meant to mock mock Kevin Nash and it, it had its it had a short lifespan but he picked up a lot and did did his best at it and he did, did very well he had about 12 televised matches in WF as the fake diesel the last one being in the Royal Rumble in 1997 so that's his arc goes from September of 96 to January of 97 as the fake diesel in WWF after that they send him back to Memphis and he's there for a bit. Keep in mind, January of 97, he leaves. We know he comes back in October of 97. So in that in-between time, he wrestled in Memphis, but he also wrestled in AAA in Mexico as the fake Diesel and yeah. fake Razor and everything else. So they were all there. So just a fun trivia note that he left WWF television, but he kept that character for a little bit, wrestling through Memphis and Mexico. So Interesting. But then I guess what happens is that, or the way that they tell the story in the bio, and I don't know if this is 100% accurate. I really don't. But they've explained that Taker is champion. They have no challengers for him. They had Vader, but Vader beat up the journalist in Kuwait. And so he got put in prison for a week, by the way. They couldn't have developed this whole Kane thing off of Vader being in jail for a week. Certainly not. In, In any event, they come up with the idea for Kane. Kane being the brother of the Undertaker because Undertaker needs some opponents. He's the champion and he has really nobody to wrestle. So 
They come up with this character and they debut him in October of 1997. But somewhere during that creative process, they all realize that this all is way too good for a single match. Sure. And so they, I think, in making that realization, they added a lot of layers to the story, I think. And they came up with something really good. And like we said before, there's something about two brothers fighting each other that just hits a nerve like no other. Those are Bret Hart's words. And it really did work. And I think you said it a couple of times, maybe the best story they ever told. Yeah. Undertaker says he believes that I'd be hard pressed to come up with one better. And just the fact that they drew it out. It was a while before you know, he was talked about a while before he showed up. He showed up, started running through the roster, but Taker swore he would never fight his brother. So it was a while before they even laid hands on each other. Like they just, the it's something that you can, you can poke fun at or make just bitch about the way WWF, WWE paces a lot of their stuff. Everything about that story was beautiful. It was perfect. It worked. It was timed properly. It, just was so damn good so kane makes his debut in october of 1997 the bad blood pay-per-view you know the one that's gotta be kane <laughs> he comes down that famous first hell in a cell match between undertaker and Shawn michaels he gets involved Shawn michaels wins the title from the undertaker not mentioned in the bio but that's what happened yeah. at the same time Shawn michaels in ring career is actually coming to a close as well he wrestles again in he wrestles the Undertaker again at the Royal Rumble, and then he wrestles Steve Austin at WrestleMania 14. Then we don't see him for a long time. Kane. It's funny you mentioned he goes through the whole roster because as from as far as a match standpoint, he wrestles Mankind at Survivor Series. He wrestles Vader at No Way Out. He wrestles Steve Austin on a Raw, but it goes to a no contest. And then he wrestles The Undertaker at WrestleMania 14. So that space of time from October all the way to late winter of March, that he only gets in the ring three times as a wrestler. Now, I know he comes down and choke slams a bunch of people throughout right. the course of exactly. that period of time. Yeah. Sells that tombstone well. But they keep him out of in-ring competition and they keep him on he's wrestling the top guys mankind vader austin so they keep him up at the top level and with a flawless record right all the way to wrestlemania 14 where kane and their ticker have their big match yeah and along the way like you said he's choke slamming guys left and right he even he attacks taker in december he attacks taker on a raw Refuser Taker refuses to fight back. In January, he choke slams Taker into the coffin and sets it on fire at the Royal Rumble. And Taker doesn't make his return until March. Like it's just the, the again that there's so many times that you can bust their balls for not getting it right. They got everything right about this build. They were patient. Yeah. I think the big thing he has he does work all the house shows. He has about forty matches between his October debut and his Vader match mm -hmm. in February wrestling as Kane. So he does do some matches there, by the way, he's wrestling Vader and all the house shows and he's wrestling chains as well. And I do believe 
the match with Vader with pretty, in February of 1998 was pretty much the end of Vader's. So Kane is responsible for that. But at WrestleMania 14, three tombstones to put down Kane. So once again, they kept him really strong in losing. And that just built to the next match, which was their Inferno match, which I want to say it would have been May of 98, I think. It was April 26th at the Unforgiven pay-per-view. Okay. Okay, because WrestleMania 14 was in was a March show. So they do a lot of talking about the stunts and stuff like that in this match, but he loses here again. So he loses to Undertaker here. Of course, he's not pinned this time because of the gimmick of matches. He has to get set on fire, and so he does and whatnot. And then that builds into a clean win. I can't say clean because I didn't go back and watch it, but he beats Undertaker on Raw to set up his match with Steve Austin at the King of the Ring in 1998, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. And and I have the note in here, but even going back to WrestleMania 14, three tombstones to put him down. He winds up, this is is what he came here for. He came here to face his brother. He loses. And has a character ever gotten more out of a loss than Kane and losing to The Undertaker? And as you say, then he loses again in the Inferno match. He's 0-2 about the against the guy that he's here to, to go after. It it's a and it just it speaks to how well they told the story and how good he is as a performer that you never you know there's a lot of guys that they there's this big build and then they lose and you're just like all right all the air comes out of the balloon I don't care about that character anymore wrestling fans in general don't care about that character anymore he never lost any steam that speaks volumes about how good of a performer he is yeah, and how well they told the story. Exactly. So then we get to King of the Ring. He wins the world title. Now I didn't realize, so the way that he wins this world title, it's a first blood match with Steve Austin. Of course, Kane is wearing a full body suit and a mask. So going in, you're like, how is Austin going to be able to draw blood on this guy? At the same time, Steve is unbeatable right now. So they do the whole gimmicky thing where Mick Foley comes out, swings the chair at The Undertaker, and hits Steve Austin. Busts Steve Austin open, and there you go. Steve Austin loses the title there. Now, we mentioned... <laughs> go ahead. Mick Foley had been in the Hell in a Cell match. Just <laughs> yeah. prior. Oh, by the way, this was Taker and Foley Hell in a Cell. <laughs> right, so he just pulled himself up he'd just been thrown off and through the cage and on thumbtacks and all that stuff and vince mcmahon comes up to kane and says if mick can't come out you're gonna have to figure out what to do and kane's the way he sells it in this bio he's like i think vince is telling me he wants me to set myself on fire instead of find a different way to bust austin open (laughs) anyway he gets through he wins the title loses it to austin the next night but he goes on quite a run so that he loses the title on this day 25 years ago at in, in 1998 and then again 15 years ago he loses the ecw world title he goes on to have over a thousand televised matches as kane and close to another 1700 house show matches in wow. a career that went he went from 92 pretty much up to the Saudi show was his real last last match the Saudi show where he fought DX and that was 2018 I think yeah I have it written down here no I don't have the date but that's the match it's like 
basically gets about 25 years out of the character. Yeah, it's ama- it's amazing. And eventually he gets unmasked. Eventually he starts to talk. Eventually you get to see his personality. And he's got a hell of a personality. Yeah, uh, He can do the comedy too. It's just... It's amazing for a guy who spends, I'm repeating myself already, but uh, for a guy who spends half of his career not speaking and having no facial expressions, you got so much out of him in the second half of his career. And the Brothers of Destruction go on, go on their tag team run and they have great success. And it's Bret Hart says something that I think is the overarching theme of the whole thing is that good things happen to those who deserve it. And you don't find guys like him. I think the quote is, and you don't find guys like him here. I think he means the wrestling biz. Basically, once again, going back to that thing that JBL says also is that no one has a bad thing to say about Glenn Jacobs. And all the good things, no one, I don't think anybody ever says like he got anything he didn't deserve. All the good stuff that happened to him was because he was a good guy. He was a good worker. He was a good teammate, if you will. He was a good person to have around in the locker room. Lita says that people could go to him for things and whatnot. Everyone is just heaping so much praise on this man, and no one's got a bad thing to say about him. And that it really comes through, and it makes you feel good for every good thing that happens to him along the way. I want to ask you about the mask, because they make a point of putting Drew McIntyre and Sheamus both in here, and they both say, I wish he never got rid of the mask. He went six years with the mask on, which when you look back, when you fast forward to 2023 and you look back on Kane, we had way more years without the mask than we had with the mask. Sure. But six years. Now, granted, there was variations on the mask and sometimes they saw more eyes and sometimes more mouth and whatnot. But six full years with that mask on is pretty impressive. Did you think he should lose the mask? I'm sure at the time I probably wasn't on board with it. And at the time, obviously I know it wasn't his choice, but at the time, when there's somebody that I dislike, I love to be able to throw extra crap on top of them. Eric Bischoff is famous for trying to unmask all the luchadors in WCW. And he was the guy in charge of raw when the stipulation was put in, that's it. You know it. You lost the match. You take that mask off. Like son of a bitch, Eric Bischoff strikes again. So I'm sure I wasn't on board at the time, but looking back, it all just worked. Yeah. You can't looking back. You can't like with everything he did afterwards, you can't say to yourself, I wish he never took it off. Right. It it could have destroyed the character. I guess genuinely it could have, but it absolutely didn't. So I actually thought at the, I can remember at the time I was like, I don't want him to lose the mask, but the, but he became, especially in that first period afterwards, boy, did the evil get ratcheted up. He was intense at that time. Poor Rob Van Dam. <laughs> Poor Shane McMahon had his testicles hooked up to jumper cables. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) That was a biggie. (laughs) Also, poor Crystal. This was also a cosmetic change she was not in favor of because they shaved half his head. (laughs) And that's where Bruce Pritchard is maybe... He might be a genius or he might just be completely evil because he kind (laughs) of... 
<laughs> during the Undertaker one, he tells us, like, I didn't tell him he was going to be coming out of the egg, but I didn't tell him he was not going to be coming out of the egg. <laughs> <laughs> and in this one, he walked in the room, they were half done shaving Kane's head, and Bruce Richard says, like, hold on a second, hold on right there, bring Vince in, and of course, Vince is going to go for anything that looks like a goddamn sideshow. So, of course, Vince loved the half-shaved head. Bruce Pritchard is an evil genius. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what it'll appeal to, to Vince. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have been right there. All right, wrapping up, Kane, I'll just go through his, his title history a bit here. So, he was the WWE champion one time. One time for one day. And then he doesn't win another title for a decade. And it's the ECW championship which he beat Chavo for at WrestleMania 24. I was in the building for that one. Oh. And he lost that 15 years ago today. And then he became the world heavyweight champion by beating Rey Mysterio, another guy who Eric Bischoff stole his mask. And then he held that title for 154 days. So that was his longest run. That was in 2010. He had 12 reigns of various tag team championships including he was he and his brother were the ones that united unified the wcw and the wwe tag titles and uh, he had two runs as intercontinental champion one of them we thought was going to be the end of the ic title when he lost a unification match there and it did go away for quite a while yeah i remember crying over that one watching yeah. the intercontinental title go away I was, what in the hell are you doing how dare you yeah yeah so that is the career of Kane and our little spin on it. But interesting point that today was the day that he lost two titles. Not one, but two. Ten years apart. <laughs> Ten years apart. Great. And it happens to be the 25th anniversary of one and the 15th anniversary of the other. Milestone day, I guess. So congrats, Kane. No <laughs> All right. That said, we'll, uh, the Daily Wrestling News Show is a Minutes to Bell Time production. Find out more at minutestobelltime.com. Today's episode was recorded by Ryan Joy and John DeConti. We utilize the A&E biography on Kane plus Cage Match as source material when discussing this episode. Subscribe to the Daily Wrestling News Show on your podcast player of choice and join us in the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. We'll see you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show. See ya.